message is called the money master and we're going to go to Luke chapter 18 and we're going to look at the money master and here's why we're talking about money in this message series and in the church and and the simple reason is this here's the theme of the series I want you to fill in the blanks up on your note page there master your money or your money will master you Master your money or money will master you. Money will have, if you allow it, a controlling influence on how you live, on who you love, on how you love who you love. Money will be, in many respects, a master for many of you unless you take the steps necessary to master your money. It's an amazing thing what Jesus says about money in the Bible. He actually talks about it like this. He says, no man can serve two masters. This is in Luke chapter 16. No man can serve two masters. Either he will love the one, hate the other, or be devoted to the one, despise the other. And then he says this fantastic line, you cannot serve God and say the word money. money. Isn't it amazing that Jesus actually sets against God for the affection of our hearts uh, money? He doesn't set against God for the affection of our hearts the devil. He doesn't say, oh, you can't serve God and the devil. Like some people are, well, isn't the opposite of God the devil? Isn't it like God and the devil in this cosmic warfare? No, 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 that's not true. It's actually the affection of our hearts will be drawn away from God toward Money, because money promises security. Money promises happiness. Money promises, you know, a life that's worth living. And, and everything that we should get from God, we ultimately sometimes look to money for. And so Jesus is very aware of the condition of the human heart, and he has a lot to say about he has a lot to say about money. Money is going to make you worry. Uh, I read this statistic this week. It's actually an incredible statistic. 75% of Americans uh, worry about money. 75% of Americans suffer from what they call money anxiety disorder. M-A-D. Are you mad? <laughs> Money anxiety disorder. 75% of Americans suffer from money anxiety disorder. And the funny thing is the other 25% of Americans are under the age of 12. So this is a universal issue, right? We all have money issues. We all have money worries. I was doing a lot of research for this message series and just thinking about how, you know, what are we going to do to take on our money worries? Well, good news, good news for you. Uh, Oprah has the answer. 
The woman who has the least money worries in the universe has advice for all of us. I went to Oprah.com, you know, where you go for all the answers. And um, she listed five things that you can do when you suffer from money anxiety disorder. Number one was get hypnotized. Okay, thank you very much. You know, let's see if that works. You are getting sleepy, right? All right, money could do that. I guess hypnotism is an option if you want to try to go that route. Number two, uh, this was interesting, kind of an oxymoron in my opinion. Uh, Treat yourself to something nice, which if you don't have money, uh, how does that help? Uh, Number three on the list was exchange a massage with your partner. Exchange a massage with your partner, which I think would just kind of remind you that you can't afford a real massage. I don't know (laughs) if that's your issue there, but that's how I thought about it. Number four was the most um, crazy on the list, at least for me anyway, take up knitting. I kid you not with a K. That was a bad joke. Forget that one. Um, Take up knitting. Does anybody here knit? Does anybody here knit? Like, okay, wow, wow, three people, whoa. The rest of us got to get on the ball. All right, let's go. Let's knit away our worries from money, you know? And then number five was see the big picture. And I was like, well, see the big picture. What does that mean? And, And here's what it said under the paragraph, see the big picture. It was your money problems are probably the result of a larger systemic problem with society. And I was like, there it is. That's the American way, isn't it? It's somebody else's fault. It's the Democrats. It's the Republicans. It's Trump and his stupid wall. Come on. Let's blame somebody else. There's got to be someone else to blame for my worries. And here's the thing. We've got to get away from the knowledge of the world, the ways of the world, the ways that people sometimes take on their problems. I think that the answer to all the things that we're going through starts with us and God. Amen, somebody? It's not up to them. Our God is greater than anything we can face. And, and so, well, anyway, that was Oprah's idea. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard about the guy who had serious money worries and he was just sick about it, sick and tired of worrying about his money all the time. So he decided to hire somebody to worry about money for him. And he decided to pay a guy $30,000 to worry about money for him. Not manage his finances, just do the worrying. Somebody asked him, how are you going to pay $30,000 to somebody to, to worry about your money? He said, that's his worry. All right, that's a bad joke, too. I'm going to scratch that one for next service. Money, money will control you. Money will master you. If you don't take intentional steps to control and manage and master your money, it will master you. Did a lot of research, like I said, for this series. And I found out a lot of facts about money. How is controlling us right now as a culture? Uh, number one, I found out that money will control our singlehood. Money will control our, our youth if we're not careful. The number one problem with young people in this country right now if financially is something you probably think about this regularly, some of you, student loan debt. Americans have $1 trillion in student loan debt right now. $1 trillion. I actually found this out. This is going to really brighten up your day. The area of America where the worst amount of student debt exists is guess where? Right here. Bank ground zero for student debt problems right here. No wonder why. I mean, there's no wonder why we have the most expensive schools. We also have the most prestigious schools in many respects, but the most expensive schools. And I read an article in the Boston Globe this week that actually shocked me. I couldn't believe I was reading this in the Boston Globe. But the Boston Globe says uh, higher education is in major trouble. 
Higher education is in major trouble because for years in this, for decades in this country, college was seen as the great equalizer. Like if you go to college and you spend the money, you make the investment to get yourself an education and you graduate, you will get a job that will equalize you with the rest of society. So college looked for many decades like the savior of society. And the problem is, is tuition rates just kept getting hiked up. In fact, I found out through this Boston Globe article that do you understand, this is incredible, the cost of higher education in this country has, uh, has increased five times the amount of inflation over the last 30 years. Five times the amount of inflation. And the promise is go to school, pay a lot of money, you'll make a lot of money. And the average student debt per year for higher education from some of these prestigious schools is $40,000 a year. $40,000 a year, that's $160,000 for an education. You could buy a house somewhere in nicer weather for that kind of money. $160,000, and now this is, that's not a bad, that's not the worst news. The worst news is this, that from these prestigious schools such as Harvard, MIT, the best of the best, and even the public institutions, they found out that the graduation rate of these $40,000 a year schools and under is 50%. 50% of those who are paying $40,000 a year to go to school are graduating, which means that the other 50% are not graduating with the degree and guess what the student loan department says about not getting your degree? Who cares? We still want our money. So some students, are, half the students, are going to school, taking out these huge loans, not finishing and not having that equalizing power to earn the money to pay them back. And in this in this series, I'm, I'm telling you right now, you're not going to want to miss one week. Don't miss one week, because this is not just about giving money to the church. It's not. It's about how you should handle your money. And we're going to talk to a guy in this series who knows how to do it, and we're going to teach you, if you pay attention, we're going to teach you how to get your kids through college, get yourself through college, and not be ending up with a ton of student debt. Sound like a good plan? Amen. Come on back. I'm not telling you which week. you got to come every week. Amen. But it will wreck your life. It will, it will burden you, this student loan issue. Uh, money will affect your marriage. Many of you already know this. Uh, the number one fight of most marriages is over money. A BYU study found out that if both spouses are materialistic, uh, if both spouses are materialistic, they will consistently fight about money and they will score at the bottom level of every other relationship quotient in the marriage. In other words, your marriage is a mess because of money. Top to bottom, every issue. Fighting, fighting, fighting about money. There's an answer to that. We're gonna talk about that. I guarantee you if you apply the principles we talk about, your marriage will get better with money. And they found out that if, the, if the, both couples are materialistic, that's a, that's a marriage killer. So here's the deal, ladies. If you want the Pottery Barn living room and he needs the James Bond car, you guys are in trouble. You need to get a hold of this. You need to master your money. Your money will master you. The divorce rates. Most divorce is caused over money. We don't really know necessarily if it's money, number one. I didn't want to like mislead you. That might be number one. There's a whole bunch of reasons why people get divorced. A lot of people say, well, we're just not compatible. And we're, we're not compatible. Incompatibility. What that means is he doesn't have enough income and she doesn't have enough patability. That's what that means. All right. 
I don't even know what that means, but you know what I'm talking about? Like income is gonna affect our marriages. I found out too that, that one of the reasons that we get divorced, a big reason is that we get divorced over money, which does not make sense. It does not make sense. Think about this. If you get divorced over money, you have to pay money to a lawyer to make sure you leave the marriage with less than half of the money because most of the money went to the lawyers to get you apart from each other. And then, by the way, your cost of living goes higher because it's cheaper to live together than separate. And so we are actually thinking if divorce is the answer for money, it's like, it's like thinking throwing gasoline on me when I'm on fire is the answer to dousing the flames. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so the single people, the young people, this is what they're doing. The answer is cohabitation. Cohabitation. In the old days, we just called that sin. Now we call it something clever. Cohabitation. I'm not going to marry you. I'm just going to live together with you because it's cheaper and we'll see how it goes. And if it goes well, then we'll finally someday maybe get married. Cohabitation has increased in this country over the last 50 years. Guess what? By 900%. 900% increase in cohabitation in this country in the last 50 years. That's crazy. And here's the thing. Here's the reason why the Huffington Post reports 91% of 20-somethings say that they have to wait until they are financially independent before they get married. Okay, I've been married 16 and a half years. I'm still not financially independent. I don't even know what financially independent means. When me and my wife got married, we were dead broke. We, 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 we scrounged for money. We, we, we struggled through. And then we look back on those days and we say, that was cool. I mean, it wasn't cool when we were in it, but it was cool to be like thrifty and wise and shop at savers and, and do things that you should do so that you don't spend your way into oblivion. And now we come out of that. And, and if you do it faithfully with the little things, I believe God starts to give you better things. And it just works by nature and by supernature as God leads you forward financially. But this idea that we're just going to, you know, wait and, and, and until, we get, until we get enough money, that's, that's just letting money, listen, that's just letting money be your what? Master. Letting money call the shots in your love life. And here's the hypocrisy of our culture. Here's the hypocrisy. Ready? Our culture tells us time and time again through, through endless romantic notions that you can't help who you love, you can't help it. You just, I just fell, I just fell in love. And then they turn around and they say, but I can't truly love you until the day I die, until I have enough money. So who's in charge? Is it the helpless love or is it money? And here's the thing about Americans. We are, we are slaves to whatever feels right, looks right, seems right. Might be sexuality, might be love, might be someone we fell in love with, might be money. We're so enslaved to all these different forces. And God comes along and he says, listen, if you serve me, I'll make you master over everything else and you won't be a servant to any anyone else. Serve God and you'll have the rest of your life mastered. Don't serve God and the rest of your life will master you. Oh, I'm preaching this morning at 9 a.m. Right? We got to look at this. Is it, is it money calling the shots or, or are we calling the shots? And, and, and then some of you say this to us and, and I hear it. Well, we don't want to get married until we can afford a nice big wedding. 
Let me just tell you what the theological response to that should be. (laughs) Kim Kardashian had a million dollar wedding and it lasted 72 days. That should be proof positive that you don't need the bling to keep the ring on the finger. All right, you know what I'm talking about? And then those of you who are here, you say, well, we're waiting, we're waiting until we can afford a big wedding. You don't need one. What you need is faithfulness and commitment. Come on, somebody. You don't need a big wedding. What you need is Jesus to hold you together. He's the glue. And if you're waiting for a big wedding, I got a deal for you. We'll do it for free. We'll bring you up to the office. Shane, our executive pastor, will be the witness. I'll say, do you, do you, great, go have sex, make babies. Let's grow the church. Come on, somebody. That's my philosophy anyway. And we won't charge you a dime. You can have guilt-free sex for free on me. Come on. What other church are you going to hear that from? Come on, somebody. Money will affect our parenting. It'll affect how we raise our kids. This is, this is another thing that, that today's Americans, America, come on, America, wake up. America's all, we can't have kids, we can't afford them. This is a serious problem in America. Can't have kids, they're too expensive. Okay, listen, I have three kids. You don't have to pay for everything up front. (laughs) You buy a pair of diapers, a set of diapers, like eight bucks. That will last you about two days, okay? Maybe less, you know, but you know what I'm saying? You pay little by little, and yes, they are expensive, but they are a great reward. Come on, older parents, you know it was tough in the beginning, but now they're older, and thank God they're out of the house, and they're a great reward back into your life, and they give you grandbabies. Come on, somebody. But in the West, in the West, what's happening, and this includes Europe, Western Europe, and America, here's what's happening. The birth rate is declining, and actually not declining, plummeting. We're just not having babies anymore. Why? Because money. Can't afford it. Too expensive. Let's have one. Let's have one baby. And here's, what, here's what's happening. Okay, this is not a political statement. This is not like a, like a theological statement. This is just a sociological fact. Christians or nations that have a great Christian heritage, great Christian heritage are not having babies. Guess what nations are having babies like crazy? Muslim nations. It is just a matter of time before the West is overrun by Islam because the the culture with the most babies wins. It's just a fact. That's not political. That's not anti-Muslim. We love Muslims. We want Muslims to come to Jesus. Amen, somebody? But the fact of the matter is, is that if we let money be our master in our birth rate, the only people that are going to suffer for that is us. I'm, in, I'm a big fan. I look, look, I know. I know I tease about, you know, how hard it is to have kids. And sometimes I feel bad about that, you know, as your pastor. Because I don't want to send the wrong message. I, I love our children. They are a, they are a joy to our lives. And, and, man, I just thank God for them every single day. We pray over them every single day. And, and I think they're pretty good looking, too, because of Cheryl. And, you know, um, we have some awesome kids. And I want to encourage you. Don't let money be the master of raising your kids. You say, it's too late, pastor. We already have four kids. We're dead broke. Okay, here's, here's a great statement for those of you who have kids. Here's a great statement. I've got a great parenting phrase. I call it my favorite parenting phrase. Are you ready for it? Are you ready? Here it is. No. <laughs> Period. That's it. 
That's the whole phrase, no. In other words, you don't need to give your kids everything that they want. You don't need to give your kids everything that they want. In fact, it is your job. It is your job, parents, to say no. I love saying no. It's one of my favorite moments as a parent. Sometimes I don't even let them finish the question. Daddy, can we have no? Ask them, they'll tell you this is true. Daddy, can we, no. But my friend, no. But my other friend, no. But everybody, no. Because this is what we say in our house. I don't care what their houses are doing. This is our house and our house serves the Lord first. No, it's a powerful phrase. Now, of course, you want to love, and when you can, you give, but you don't have to give them everything. I feel like I need to apply this a little bit thicker over here. This, kind of, this part of the crowd is not responding so well, so affirmatively over there. A lot of young people over there. That's probably why. Let me ask you something, though, everybody. Has God ever said no to you? Who has God said no to in this house? Hands raised. Come on. Now, when he said no, were you happy about it? No. You hated it. But looking back now, can't you look back at some of those no's and say, thank God for that no? I mean, that's how it works. That's what a good parent does. If God does that for you, he does that so that you learn how to do it for your kids. And so parenting is is money running the house and your parenting lives. And then I found out the last thing, I promise, money is running the show when it comes to friendships. One in five Americans reports losing a friend over the last year over money. One in five friendships have been ruined over money. Never lend money to friends, you know, the whole story, all that deal. Don't ever involve money with friendships. Uh, Ladies, I have bad news for you. The number one culprit of losing a friend over money, asking your friend to be your bridesmaid. (laughs) Because I guess it's very expensive to be a bridesmaid. It's like $1,700 to be a bridesmaid. $1,700 to look slightly uglier than the girl in the white dress. (laughs) I mean, come on. And so they say no, because I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. That's a lot of money. And so the friendship gets tainted. The friendship gets broken because she said no. And we lose friends. And here's all I'm saying. Here's all I'm saying. Master your money or money will master you. So here's my idea. What if we were masters of our money? You're going to get a lot of money in life. Um, You're going to have to work for most of it. And what do you do with it? And we're going to talk about this in a few weeks. Every week or every other week or every month, whenever you get paid, you take a test. You thought tests were over when you graduated high school. They're not over. Every time you get money into your pocket, you take a test. And some of you are failing that test. And the reason why you're stressed and you're nervous and you're fighting everybody and you're angry and you're upset is because money, the test, you're failing the, you're failing the money test and it is mastering you. What if we were masters of our money? I want to help you. I don't want something from you. I want something for you when it comes to your money. So Luke 18, we're gonna look at a guy, he's in the Bible, he's called the rich young ruler. And it's kind of ironic that he's called the rich young ruler because we're gonna find out that he actually wasn't in charge of his life. And we're gonna find out that money was actually ruling the ruler. And we don't know his name and we don't know where he came from, but we know how he ended up. And it's a sad story. 
but it's an important story. Let's stand together. Let's read Luke chapter 18, verse 18. Here's what it says. A ruler came to Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept since I was a young boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you lack. Somebody say lack. One thing you lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Isn't it amazing how often sadness and riches go together? Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, there are there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time. I love that phrase, in this time. And in the age to come, they'll receive eternal life. And taking the 12 aside, he said to them, see, we are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And they could not understand these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what he said. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, may we not be like the disciples today. May we grasp what is being said. Father, may we not be like this young man today. May we learn to... Master our money and not let it master us. Father, speak to us, your people. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us mostly to see Jesus. In his mighty name we pray and everybody said, amen. amen. Have a seat. You're going to have a lot of money go through your hands in this life. You are going to have a lot of money go through your hands in this life. I won't call them all at once, but here's the deal, and I want you to hear me say this. Every time you get paid, you take a test. Every time you get money in, you take a test. Some of you are failing that test. You're failing it every week. We're going to talk about that pretty soon. This guy was failing the test. He was failing the test, and the reason why you know he's failing the test is because at the end of the day, instead of choosing Jesus, he chose riches. What a horrible test to fail. How are you going to handle the tests that God gives you when it comes to money? Well, Jesus brings this guy through a journey, a journey of self-discovery, if you will. And I want to bring you through the same journey. And I want to ask you four questions today. And I think that these are the four questions that the guy was being asked by Jesus. And we need to answer them for ourselves. And so today in a foundational topic message about money, we have got to start looking at these four questions and, and see if we can say yes to each of the four questions. And I believe if you can say yes to each of these four questions, you're going to be well on your way to starting 
the process of mastering your money rather than letting money master you, okay? Question number one, if you're taking notes. Question number one, real easy question. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? See, that's gonna be the biggest issue when it comes to you and money right there. If Jesus is God, it changes everything about how you see everything. Uh, because this is what the rich young ruler has to come to grips with, with Jesus. He, he says, good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is, why do you call me good? You ever notice that nobody ever has a normal conversation with Jesus? You ever notice it's like in the New Testament? Nobody ever says, hey, Jesus, how are you? He never responds with, how are you? Good to see you. God bless you. He never does that. It's always like, hey, Jesus, how are you? He's like, you've had four husbands, and you're shacked up with a guy who's not your husband. What the heck is going on? And in this moment, this guy's like, good teacher. And he's like, let's talk about that word good. Why'd you call me that? The word good in the Jewish religion refers only to God. It was a sacred word. It was a, it was a word reserved only for God in the first century of the Jewish faith. So Jesus kind of catches him in his own lingo and it says, it's interesting that you call me good because only God is good. Jesus is not denying his divinity. He's affirming it. And let me just tell you this. If he's God, it changes everything about what he said. Because here's what the Bible tells us in the first page of the scriptures. God created everything. He created you. And if Jesus is God, as John says in his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and nothing was made that has been made without him. And in verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, God the Son became a human and walked among us. Jesus is God. He's not a philosophy. He's not a religion. He's not a way to heaven. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And no one comes to the Father except by Jesus Christ. Can I get a witness this morning that we serve Jesus Christ, who's God the Son? And if he's God, he's your creator. And let me say it another way. If he's God, he's your manufacturer. When I have a, when I have a problem with my car... I do not open the hood. I stay far away from that thing because I have no idea what's going on. Sometimes I open the hood just for kicks. <laughs> See all the little things and the buzzing and all this stuff, and I'm like, cool. It gets me where I want to go, but I have no idea how it does that, and I don't need to know. You know why I don't need to know? Because there's someone called the dealership. When something goes wrong with the car, I bring it to the place that manufactured the car, and something magical happens when they take care of the car. It works again. Here's what I'm saying. If you are manufactured by Jesus and you're struggling with money in actually any area of your life, why don't you bring your life to the manufacturer? 
Why don't you stop listening to everybody else? All those, you know, all those guys who have different ideas and, and maybe they don't even tell you their ideas and, and, and stop comparing your car, how about this, to other people's car. How about you say, God, this is the car you get. This is the body. This is the life you gave me. All right, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I'm broken. I'm stressed about finances. What do you have to say? Bring it to the manufacturer. See what happens. You'll never do that unless you know Jesus is God. And he knows how you should operate. Question number two, is Jesus good? So it's one thing to say, well, he's God, but is he good? Okay, okay. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I have a captive audience that will say yes to this. But, but the question is, how do we know he's good? This is a question of the rich young ruler, you know, good teacher. Well, well why do you call me good? Why? Why is Jesus so good? Why do I, listen, why do I worship Jesus and not Buddha, Hare Krishna, Muhammad? Why, why, why not? Well, I, I think he's good. How do I know he's good? Because of what he's did for me. That's how you know someone's good to you. I want to ask you a personal question. What's the greatest good anybody ever did for you? Just think about it for a second. Not too long because I don't have much time. <laughs> What's the greatest good that you've ever received from somebody else? You know, I don't know if it's the greatest good that I could say about this from my life, but I, I think it was really good is that somebody, when, when Cheryl and I were getting married, somebody came up to us in church and said, I want to give you my timeshare in Aruba for your honeymoon. And it was, it was one of those five-star places, top level, high class, we said, yes. We went down. We got into the elevator. We pressed the top floor button. We went up. And, and, you know, we went up into the elevator to the top floor with all these other, you know, you could tell by the way they were dressed, the way we were dressed. And they looked at us, and they were like, what are you doing here? We did not belong there. We were dirt poor. We could barely scrape money together to get the plane tickets to go. But thank God that person gave us that timeshare. And you know what I thought about? That person gave up what they had so that we could have what they had. This is how I know Jesus is good. Here's how I know. Because Jesus gave up what he had so that you could have what he had. He, he, he had top floor status in heaven. He did. He had eternal harmony with God the Father. That's what the Bible teaches us. And he said, I'm going to give it all up and I'm going to set it aside and I'm going to go down to earth and I'm going to live and I'm going to die. And on that cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the only time Jesus addressed God as God and not the Father. Because in that moment, listen, Jesus had been cut off from perfect fellowship with the Father so that you and I could be joined to perfect fellowship with the Father. He gave up his status so that we could get it. Isn't God good? Isn't Jesus good? It doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any better than that. My Bible tells me in Romans chapter 5 that not many people would be willing to die for an upright person, though for someone especially good, we might perhaps be willing to die. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. 
And then later on in chapter eight of Romans, he says this, if he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Jesus freely give us, say the last two words, everybody, all things. What is Paul saying in Romans chapter eight there? He's saying, Jesus' death is the guarantee that God is always gonna give you what you should have. God's always gonna take care of you. You say, how do I know? Look at the cross. If he didn't spare Jesus, if he didn't spare Jesus, why would he keep anything good from you? Is he God? Is he good? Number three, is he trustworthy? Is Jesus trustworthy? And this is where the rubber meets the road, right here. Because it's one thing, it's one thing to believe that Jesus is God. It's another thing to believe that Jesus is good, but are you trusting him? And this is the hurdle that the rich young ruler cannot get over. So he comes to Jesus, good teacher, what should I do to inherit an eternal life? And Jesus, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. And then the, the answer comes and he says, you know the commandments. And then he lists the commandments. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. That's another way of saying do not lie. Honor your father and your mother. Now, Sunday school question. How many commandments are there? Has anybody here been to Sunday school ever? <laughs> How many? Anybody ever seen the movie? It's called The What Commandments? The Ten, there you go. The Ten Commandments. I was scared for a moment there. <laughs> Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. Remember Charlton Heston? <laughs> Big flowing robe comes down. He's got how many tablets? Two tablets. Ten commandments, two tablets. Here's what, here's what theologians say. There was two parts of the law. Two tablets. Tablet number one were the commandments that have to deal with your vertical relationship with God. Tablet number two has to do with your horizontal relationships with your fellow man. The second part of the commandments have to do with how you treat each other. When Jesus recites the commandments to this rich young man, he quotes from the second tablet of the law. It's not like Jesus forgot. He wasn't like, uh, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit, and uh, man, there's a couple others, I don't know, right? No, he's doing something intentionally because no one ever has a normal conversation with Jesus. He's leading this man somewhere. He gives him the second half of the commandments, and here's why. A reasonable argument could be made that if you just do the second half of the Ten Commandments, your life will be far more blessed than if you don't do them. Let, let me unpack this for a minute. Will your life go better or worse if you kill somebody? Worse. Worse. You people have me worried. These people knew right away. I, I don't know who you are. Okay. <laughs> if, you don't commit a, if you don't commit murder, you don't go to jail. Hence the possibility you could earn more what? Money. If you don't lie and you're trustworthy, people will hire you. Come on, you know this. You know this. Which contractor do you hire? 
Do you hire the one that's got the five-star rating on Angie's List or the guy with two dark sunglasses that comes from East Providence? Come on, somebody. <laughs> By the way, there was somebody from East Providence in the first service. They got saved. Hey, hallelujah. I think they were a contractor. Praise God for that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's a joke. Take a joke. Chill out. All right. Anyway, if you're honest, if you're a person of integrity, if you do business dealings honestly, more people will come to your business, and guess what will happen? You will make more money. If you're an employee and you're an honest employee, that employer will be happy you're an honest employee, and good chance is you will make more money. If you do not commit adultery, you will not have to pay child support. <laughs> see, see, that line right there was worth the price of admission for many of you, right there. Right there. You will make more money if you only have sex with one person for the rest of your life. It's true. Chances are good. And then honor your father and mother. Okay, that one, even the Bible says, if you do this one, it will go well with you. That's, that's from Exodus chapter 20. So, Jesus quotes back to this man the second tablet of the law and the reason why we made, if you do those, life will go well with you and you will make more money. And I think that's exactly what he did because his response is without hesitation. All these I have kept from my youth and it's worked for me. You know what I call this guy? I call him the classic American Christian. I'm a good person. I'm a good person, and good things should happen to me. And it did for him. But there was a problem. Because you can get to the point where you're so good and good things start happening to you that you stop trusting God and you're just trusting you. Amen. That's exactly what his problem was. So, so Jesus is so brilliant because he's not, he's not like, okay, now let's go to the first table and no God before me and no images. He doesn't do that. What he does, stroke of genius from Jesus, is that he encapsulates what it would look like to obey the first table of the commandments with one simple question. He says, one thing you lack, sell everything. Give it to the poor. The church doesn't want your money. Come follow me. Now, Jesus is not giving us the game plan on how to get to heaven here. And I know this because he met other rich people and he never asked this of them. He didn't ask it of Zacchaeus. He didn't ask it of Matthew. He didn't ask it of Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, very rich people. And, and also the rich people of the Old Testament, people like David and Abraham, uh, who were exceedingly rich, they would be up a creek without a paddle because they didn't do it. So Jesus is not saying the way to get to heaven is sell everything and live in poverty and give it to the poor and then, and then God will accept you and, and everybody in this house, I can see it on your face, you're just sitting there saying, <laughs> so, so the question is, why this guy? Because he was trusting himself for a good life. And Jesus says, I want you to put yourself in a position where you have to trust me can you do that? And the answer was no. 
If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. I was designed to trust. It's a very simple statement. It's something we don't think about a lot, but it's so true. You were designed to trust. Think about the human condition for a few moments. You have to eat regularly to survive. That means that you got to depend on food coming forth out of the ground. We're so disconnected from this. But in an agricultural society like, like first century Israel, they knew it. We're disconnected because when we're hungry, where do we go? We go to the grocery store. We go to the restaurant. It's all done. But that had to come from somewhere. It had to come from the ground. It had to come from a seed. Something happened to the seed in the soil when no one saw. Life came forth. Fruit was born. And things live. And it gives us life. We're designed to trust. Uh, how long can you go without water? Like three days? So often we take water for granted because we can just go to the bubbler. Just press a little button on the bubbler. But sometimes you got to go to a country where water is a crisis every single day. And people are literally relying on wells being dug so that they can live. We're dependent people. We have to trust. Okay, think about this too. How long can you go without air? Every moment you have to do this. Every moment you have to receive oxygen. And the moment oxygen gets cut off from you, you have got seconds left. We're designed to trust. God did this on purpose. He designed us this way so that we would look for things to trust in. And ultimately, we would put our trust in him. So take this down, write this down in your notes. If I must trust, it's best to trust God. And that begins with my money. I'm I, I designed to trust. I got to trust him. And listen to me very carefully. Some of you are going to walk out of here and say, I don't want to do whatever the preacher says. I don't want to do what the preacher says about money. I don't want to trust God. Okay, I guarantee you, you're going to trust somebody. You're going to trust someone or something or some plan somebody else sold you. And guess what? They're not your manufacturer. They could ruin you. Trust God. He made you and he loves you and he guaranteed it with his son's blood. When Jesus puts this man in a position to consider what life would look like when he would only have Jesus as his trust, the answer is no thanks. And the Bible says when he heard these things, he became sad. Matthew says he went away sorrowful. He left Jesus because of money. Jesus, seeing that he went away and became sad, the Bible says, said, this is hard. It's hard for people with wealth to come into the kingdom of heaven. And, and, he, and he says this, this little hyperbole here. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of you have heard this. Some of you have heard this, and I want to debunk it. There was no gate for sheep in first century Jerusalem that was called the eye of the needle. There was none. So this idea that it was possible, just the camel had to get down on his knees, which I don't even know if camels have knees. He had to take off all his stuff and like crawl through the eye of the needle sheep gate and then he would be in. Um, there's theological problems with that. 
And, and then there's a historical problem with that. There was no gate called the eye of the needle. And secondly, the theological problem is that would imply that if you work hard enough, you can get into the kingdom of heaven on your own effort. So that's not true. What Jesus is saying is what Jesus is saying. The largest animal in those days to the Jewish mind was a camel. The smallest opening in Jewish days in those times was the eye of a needle. And he says, it's easier for that to happen than for people with wealth to get into heaven. And everybody here, I can see it on your face. You're like, thank God I'm not rich. (laughs) If you're American, you are rich. Little project for you, little homework for you. Go home, log on to globalrichlist.com. Don't do it now. Put your phones down. (laughs) Globalrichlist.com. Punch in your income and see where you rank on the global scale, not on your neighborhood scale. If you make $40,000 a year, do you realize if you make $40,000 a year, you're in the top half percent of the world's wealthy? Guess what Jesus is saying? He's saying it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for an American to trust God instead of money. Ouch. It's so pervasive in our culture. We're trained from birth to put our hope in money. Do well in school. Why? So that you can get into a good college. Do well in college. Why? So that you can get a good job. Do well in that job. Why? So that you can get a good house. We're trained. We're trained from birth to trust that money will make us happy. And you gotta, some, some people are so stubborn, they gotta do the whole thing and get the money and realize they're still not happy. It's still not enough. And Jesus is like, I'll spare you the trip. I'll spare you the decades of chasing after the American dream. Put your trust in me. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things that everybody else chases, I'm going to give to you. I'm going to pour into your lap. You won't have to chase it. It'll chase you. What did the psalmist say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not Want. And then at the end, he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Why? Because I got a good shepherd and his name is Jesus. Don't you understand? The disciples are shocked. They're just shocked. They're just shocked. They say, man, who then can be saved? It's hard for the rich, and the rich were thought to be good in those days. It's hard for the rich to get We can't, we don't have a shot. And Jesus, without a hesitation, says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, can I just say that we have a serious problem with this verse? Because we take this verse and we apply it to everything other than what Jesus was applying it to. Well, I can't afford a car, but all things are possible when gone. <laughs> I can't find a date, but all things are possible when gone. Okay, that's not what Jesus was saying that about here. He was saying, you cannot change your heart about money, but God can. And until you have him do it, 
Money will be your master. So how does he do it? Well, that brings me to question number four. Is Jesus good to those who trust him? If he's God, if he's good, if he's trustworthy, and I trust him, what will happen? And Peter says to Jesus, don't put your notes away just yet. I got one more thing for you to do. He says, Jesus, we've left our homes for you. We've trusted you. What does Jesus say? I'll tell you the truth. There's no one. There's no one who's left houses, spouses, children, possessions for the sake of the kingdom of God who will fail to receive many times more. All right, if you're taking notes, I want you to underline the next three words. What are the next three words? In this time, which means that the gospel message is not live like a pauper down here and you'll get money up there. No, he'll take care of you here too. My wife and I have sacrificed for the kingdom, laid down money for the kingdom, put tons of money into this church, tons of money into our building programs, tons of money into things. You know, we've also had, and this is the thing about pastoral work, this, this job will kill you. If you, don't, if you let it, the old saying says, if you make your money in religion, you'll lose one or the other. We've seen, we've seen because, of, because of the call of God in our lives, we've seen friends walk out the door. We've seen family walk out the door. We've seen resources go out the door. And the funny thing is, every time we've watched something walk out, we've turned around and we've walked, watched five more things come on back in. God always pays you back. Always pays you back. And he pays you back better. What's the guarantee? Last passage of scripture we're going to put on the screen. And Jesus takes the 12 aside and he says, look, I'm going to Jerusalem. Everything written about me is going to come true. They're going to capture me. They're going to, they're going to spit on me. They're going to mock me. They're going to flog me. They're going to kill me. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Why does Jesus talk about the cross right after the rich young ruler walks away? Do you know why? Here's why. Don't miss this. Because Jesus is the true rich young ruler. He's the one who was willing to do what this guy wasn't willing to do. He let... He set aside his riches. He set aside his authority. He set aside his prerogatives as God. And he became a slave. He became a servant for you. I guarantee that you can trust God with your money is the blood that flows down Calvary's cross to tell you God has your back. You can trust him.